Today's talk is about the Jewish perspective on JC, and it's important to note before we begin that it's not really heavily emphasized as, as you might imagine. Like people today are very fascinated to, to hear about this, but people, um, the author who authored the Talmud, weren't so couldn't imagine people would be interested in this, and therefore there really isn't a lot of sources on um, on JC and Christianity, and indeed in general I would say that historical existence and perspective on JC is a little bit difficult to nail down, pardon the pun. Uh, he's not mentioned a lot by, contempor- uh, by contemporary sources. Uh, for example, there are two passages in Josephus, who was the eminent Jewish-slash-Roman historian of the time. He has two passing references about JC. According to most scholars, those were either... Uh, changed or added in later, but the authenticity and historicity of those accounts are certainly in doubt. And I would argue even from Christian perspective, Christian sources, the early, the four early Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they appear on the scene about s- between 30 to 60, maybe even later, years after this JC is reported to have lived. So there is a paucity of sources general uh, in, in the general world, general history, uh, and even Christian history. And in Jewish sources, we find some sources in the Talmud. Now, it's important to note, if you actually go through all 63 books of Mishnah and 39 books of Talmud, you won't find any references to JC. Uh, and the reason why is because in the Middle uh, Ages, in the medieval times, the Roman Catholic Church at various times either forced the censoring of the Talmud, they thought there were parts that they considered to be theologically problematic, and therefore they edited them out, uh, other times they had forced destruction of copies of the, of the Talmud. We know famously they burned 24 wagon loads of Talmud in Paris in, I think, 1243 or something like that. And uh, obviously at the time, you know, today, you destroy 24 uh, wagons full of Talmud. It's, it's terrible. But at the time when everything's been copied by hand and the only extant manuscripts are ones that are handwritten and those are, co- those are burned, 24 wagons full of them, it's a real disaster. Now, even though the sections of the Talmud that discuss J.C. were censored, us Jews are obsessed with our manuscripts. So the Jews clandestinely maintained a book containing, containing all the redacted parts of the Talmud that you could still buy today called Chesronos Hashat, which means the missing parts of the Shas of the Talmud. And in modern editions of the Talmud, so it depends. Some of them, so I have over here some Talmud. Um, this is the Vilna Talmud. Uh, this is the gold standard of Talmuds. But you'll notice something very bizarre about this page. So you have this page, which it goes all the way to the end. And really, every page goes all the way to the bottom. So all, every single page goes to the bottom. With the exception of this page, there's this whole white part. You'll notice that over here on page 43 in Sanhedrin, and on page 107b as well, you see this really strange-looking piece of white space on the Talmud, you don't find anywhere else. Everywhere else it goes to the bottom. And the reason why is when they wrote, when they finalized this edition of the Talmud in Vilna, they were aware that these particular pages were missing sections that were taken out hundreds of years prior. So in order to make this little note in the actual document that there's missing pieces, they left this big white space. Now, in other editions, so here I have an updated version of of the Talmud. This is the Oz Vahadar variant of 
the Vilna Talmud, what they did is on page 43 and on page 107b, they didn't add it in back to the way it was, but they put it along the margins. If you look at the margin over here, it gives us a quote from the Chasron HaShashat, from the missing parts of the Talmud, all the various uh, words of the section that were cut out. Some of them actually, there's some editions of the Talmud actually put it into the page. So we actually do have access to what the architects of the Talmud and the leaders of the, of, of the Jewish community of the time actually believed in their perspective on this individual and this movement. And I think it's important for us to critically analyze these sections because these parts are like no every other part of the Talmud. The Talmud is written with unfathomably deep insight. There's multiple layers and there's things hidden uh, between the lines. But, you know, if you were to Google the question of JC and the Talmud, you find thousands of websites and a lot of anti-Semitism uh, being spewed. And that's unfortunate because most, most, a lot of it is being misinterpreted, misunderstood, misrepresented, taken out of context. And therefore, it's good to go to the sources and see what the sources actually say before we try to, uh, un, you know, try to give an informed opinion as to what it actually means. The Talmud doesn't even talk about JC. It talks about a fellow by the name of Yeshu or Yeshu Hanotsri. Now, what this is and who this individual is, and is this the Christian JC, is a major question. Because Yeshu, in all likelihood, is a variant of Yehoshua, Joshua. Uh, and it's very likely that there may have been tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people with that name. And thus, when you find that name in Jewish sources, it's not necessarily a thousand percent clear that you're referring to the same individual. What's more, the word Yeshu, or Yehoshua indeed, that means salvation. So I would imagine if I was an aspiring Messiah 2,000 years ago, and I wanted to choose like an alias, um, just as my kind of my business, my operating name, it would seem like a good choice to choose Yehoshua or Yeshu, because that would indeed kind of bolster my credentials. Uh, so... And this is very useful because if you look at the sources and you, you, know, you understand at what point in time they're talking, it seems very clear to me and indeed to commentators as, uh, you know, as, as much as a thousand years ago that there's for sure more than one person being mentioned in the verses. Because you take some hints from the verses and it's clear that it's not talking about the same people. Additionally, another kind of wrinkle in this discussion is that the word Yeshu uh, has been suggested that it's not actually a proper name. Because you would wonder, if his name was Yehoshua, why would he not just stick to Yehoshua? It seems like it's okay. It's a good name to still have. Why would you change it to Yeshu? So some have suggested that the word Yeshu is not a proper name, but it's just an acronym for Yemach Shemo May his name and his memory be blotted out, which is, which is what's given to enemies of the Jewish people. So whether that's true or not, who knows? But it certainly adds more uh, issues and items into the discussion. What does the word Yeshu even mean? Is it referring to someone? Is it referring to ideas? Is it referring to multiple people? And that's a, a little bit confusing. And indeed, the Ramban, Nachmanides, in 1263 in Spain, had a famous disputation with a local Jew who had become Christianized. They had a debate and the Ramban suggested that every time the Talmud says Yeshu, is not necessarily the same person. Obviously, different people being described as Yeshu, and it's not necessarily referring to the Christian hero. So that's important to note. Okay, so let's go through the sources 
Uh, and the first source is about the execution of someone by the name of Yeshu and their five students. Now, the context for this, this is from Sanhedrin 43a. The context for this, this is discussing what's the laws of someone who was convicted of a capital crime, specifically one of Stila, one that, uh, that uh, uh, contains within it the capital punishment of Stila, and what to do once you find someone is guilty, indeed all the uh, judicial proceedings are done, what now? So there's the last-ditch effort to try to find, uh, to try to find vindication for the person, and they would announce, as they're, even as they're leading someone to the execution, they would make an announcement, they have a crier announcing, this and this person is, was convicted of the following crime that happened at the following location at this time. These are the witnesses. If anyone knows any reason that may find uh, uh, acquittal for him, come forward. Then we know in Jewish law of capital punishment, the overarching goal is to try to find acquittal. We don't like being the ones to put someone uh, down for their crime. Uh, and there's a mitzvah, we have to always try to find acquittal for someone who is accused of a capital crime. Even post-conviction, on the way to execution, they make announcements to try to tell everyone uh, that this person is being convicted or was convicted of a crime. If anyone knows any reason to try to change it, to try to find acquittal even post-facto, they should come forward. That's what the Gemara says. But what's implied in the Gemara is that this is only uh, someone's convicted, and they're being led to the institution immediately, and on the way, they're making this announcement. But prior to that, they don't make the announcement. It means there's no, there's no buffer, so to speak, between the time when someone is convicted and the time that someone is executed. We don't have this death row, we would just this interminable amount of time that, you know, that years between conviction and execution. It's right away. But along the process to the execution, they make that announcement. So that's what the Talmud actually says. If you read the Talmud, that's what you'll find. But in the censored, it, said, it says as follows. Tanya. Uh, and you'll see how this is pertinent. Be'erav Pesach taluhu liyeshu. On the eve of Pesach, they hung Yeshu. Ve'achruz yotzelufanav arboim yom. And the announcement, i.e. heralding his execution, that came 40 days prior uh, there was an announcement for 40 days beforehand that Yeshu was going to be executed for the crime of sorcery, the crime of public and private heresy. Whoever knows the reason for acquittal, come forward and teach it. And they didn't find anyone who pre- pre- presented a reason of acquittal, and they hung him on the eve of Passover. That's what the Gemara says. Uh, Amr Ula, Saula responds, is, does this make sense? Right? The halacha is that someone who is accused of heresy and promoting heresy, there is no, re- we don't try to find acquittal. Normally we try to find acquittal, but for someone whose sin is as egregious as trying to promote heresy, that person we don't try to find acquittal. Says the Gemara, no, Yeshu, because this Yeshu was close to the kingdom, he had political ties. Therefore, even though normally we don't try to find acquittal for, acquittal for someone who's a Mesa, someone who's trying to do, promote heresy, and even though normally you only have one day of announcements 
before someone is executed. Here you have 40 days of announcements, and indeed, you also try to find acquittal for him. That's the first section of the Gemara. Now, it would suggest, quite plainly, that this is a discussion about the execution in a Jewish court of law of a fellow by the name of Yeshu for a set of crimes, and indeed it's a historical account. That's what it seems at first glance. I think that's pretty clear. It's, it says it very clearly. On the eve of Passover, they hung Yeshu because of these crimes. It was 40 days. It seems very clear. But if you actually read critically, it seems that there is robust evidence that it's indeed not a historical account. Number one. First of all, by what method of execution did they kill him? It seems like they hung him. It says, they hung him. We know that there's four methods of execution in the Jewish court. None of them are hanging. They're not hanging is not one of them. So why would they discuss the hanging as a method of execution when that's not even a method of execution of a Jewish court of law? Number one. Perhaps you may suggest that the halacha does indeed say that when someone is stoned to death, stila, afterwards they hang him. There is indeed such a law. But, and maybe they stoned him and then they hung him. That's a good thing to suggest. But I would question why are they harping on the post-mortem process of hanging and not on the execution itself, which is the stoning. So it seems bizarre for the, 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 the focal point to be the hanging, number one. Number two, it gives us also a time in the calendar when this happened, the eve of Passover. Now, one of the laws of a Jewish court is that they do not sit on the eve of holidays and Shabbos. So why would this court behave not in line with the laws of a Jewish court? Furthermore, thirdly, the Gemara says that the reason why he got special treatment and he got the 40 days and we tried to find acquittal for him is because he was close to the kingdom. Well, we know historically that the Christians were not close to the kingdom, i.e. the Romans, until many hundreds of years later. So this seems to be a historical, correct? Because it's not describing what we know to be true from that time. So there's three reasons to suggest that this particular statement in the Talmud is not describing an event necessarily. Or at least, if it is, there's a lot of questions we have to address. Why are there problems in this narrative? But the Talmud actually continues. And the Talmud says, There's five students that Yeshu had, and they were also executed alongside him. Matai, Nakai, Netzer, Boni, and Toda. Now, these names are strange names because each one of them actually means a word in Hebrew. Matai means when, in Hebrew is when. And nakai is naki, clean. Neitzer is a shoot, like a, a vegetation. Boni is close to the word ben, beni, which means a, a child. And toda means thanks or a thanks offering. And the Talmud launches into a debate that happened between these students and the executioners. So they brought Matai in. And, he, and Matai said... He's trying to argue for his own vindication. He says, how are you going to kill Matai? Matai Yehare, you want to kill Matai? The verse tells us, Matai avo When will I come and see the face of God? He's trying to argue for his innocence by quoting a verse that has his own name that says, when, Matai is when, when will I come and see the face of God? And they responded to him, Amrulo, 
In, yes. Matai will indeed be killed. Dixiv, Matai Amus. When will this person finally die? So there's this strange polemic here between the students of Yeshu and Yeshu himself and the, and the court. The court is saying, we're going to kill you. And they say, what? How could you kill me? There's a verse somewhere in Tanakh that says, Matai, which is my name, Matai, when will I see the face of God? Which means I'm righteous. And they say, no, you're not righteous. There's another verse that says, Matai, Yamus, when will this guy finally die? <laughs> and they wrote in the next guy, Nakai. What happened with Nakai? He says to Nakai, you're going to kill Nakai? And he quotes a verse uh, that says, Naki, i.e. someone who's clean, bereft of sin, vitzadik, and someone who's righteous, al-taharot, don't kill. And they quote him a different verse. Nakai will be killed. Why? Bimistarim yahared naki. In the hidden places, naki, nakai, will be killed. And indeed, this continues. Neitzer, they brought a Neitzer. And he says, you're going to kill Neitzer? He quotes a verse in Isaiah, v'neitzer mishorshav yifra, a shoot will sprout from its shoot, uh, uh, from its uh, roots, which is a reference to Messiah. So he's like, look at me. How could you possibly, you know, look at me? The verse says, uh, which is my name, will bring about the Messiah. And they say to him, no, bring him a different verse also from Isaiah. You have been flung from your grave like a detested shoot. And this happens again and again. Banai, he says, uh, my son, my firstborn Israel, i.e. I'm the son of God, so to speak, which is what he's implying. And how could he possibly kill me? And they respond to him, No, I will kill your firstborn son. And lastly, Toda. He says, How could you kill Toda? And they say to him, He says, Well, it says, Mizmar Lasoda, which means uh, uh, when King David is, is saying a praise to God, it's a Mizmar for Toda. And they say, We're going to kill Toda. That's the Gemara ends. And presumably, those five students were also executed. Now, What's clear, if anyone studied anything about Jewish law, that this is actually not how the judicial proceedings happen. You don't come and say, well, my name is Matai. How could you possibly kill Matai? Because of some verse that says Matai is a, is a righteous person. And this whole back and forth is really perplexing. It seems to me that this is further proof that this particular episode, at least, there's more to it. It's certainly not just retelling the minutes, so to speak, of a debate that happened with the student, because if you want, if you're guilty of a crime and you want to be uh, found innocent, you want to be acquitted, you know what you need to do? You have to provide evidence. And you know what? If you're a court and you're trying to convict someone, you know what you need to do? You also need to provide evidence. This, this, this game, a wordplay with the names of these people and verses that seem to correspond to one way or the other, that's not the way it's done. Clearly, from this particular, from this uh, continuation of the Talmud, it's abundantly clear that this whole section needs to be reevaluated. It's not necessarily telling a historical event. It seems like it's more theological. And I want to suggest, perhaps, if you look at the actual debate, there's a lot of indication that this is a theological debate. For example, Matai avo When will I come and see the face of God? Which is a verse in, in, in the Torah, in, in Tanakh. What it seems like the students of Yeshu are suggesting is that, hey, look, the Torah seems to say God has a face. If God has a face, maybe he could have kids, maybe he could have this, maybe he could have that. It seems like that's what he's suggesting. The next guy says, B'ni b'chori Yisrael, my son, my firstborn Yisrael. It seems um, that this is not just a question of the 
guilt or innocence of these people, it's much more a theological debate that maybe happened or would have happened, or solely a perspective of what the authors of the Talmud uh, believe regarding J.C. and his students. To be clear, I'm not trying to say the Jews didn't execute him. That's not my point. I'm just saying this particular Talmud has to be reevaluated. It's not, it's not as simple as it may appear. Um, now, there's another wrinkle here, because we know that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin left the marble chamber inside the temple, and they moved to the outskirts of Jerusalem, a place called Hanut. Now, why did they do that? We know that Sanhedrin was always stationed in the middle of the temple. And that was the Sanhedrin, the, the massive supreme court of, of Israel. But the halacha is that for any court throughout the world to have the power of capital punishment, they would need to have the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Thus, Sanhedrin leaves Jerusalem, leaves the temple, leaves the marble chamber, and they go elsewhere. That, so to speak, handcuffs every single court of Jewish law all across the world from adjudicating capital punishment. That means from the year 30 to the year 70, there was no capital punishment done for the Jewish people at all. Thus, if we accept the traditional timeline of J.C., he's, his death, so to speak, is going to fall during the time period where Jewish, the Jewish courts were not uh, performing capital punishments. That's just one point. Now, just to be absolutely clear, there's a counterpoint to that as well. Because the Talmud is discussing Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the elder sage of Israel at the time. And he, we know, only served on the Sanhedrin for 40 years. Yet, his tenure extended beyond the temple's destruction. Thus, the 40 years should have only fallen out during times where the Sanhedrin was not uh, administering capital punishment. Yet the Talmud makes it clear that Rabbi Yochum did oversee, did preside over a capital punishment case. So the, Tal- the Tosos asked this question, Tosos, in case you're interested, 37b in Sanhedrin. And Tosos says that periodically the Sanhedrin who was in exile in Chanut would reconvene, go back to the marble chamber in Jerusalem, in the temple, in order to hear a capital punishment case. And indeed, that's how Rabbi Yochum Zakkai was able to oversee capital punishment cases. And then it adds cryptically, Kehahu Uvda, which means as in that episode. So the Talmud is referencing another episode unnamed in the text of the Tosfos. Tosfos is written in the Middle Ages, where the Sanhedrin went back to the marble chamber into the temple and oversaw a capital punishment case. So there are those, there, are, there have been those that have suggested that this cryptic statement in the Tosfos is actually referring to the episode of JC, uh, where the temple, because it was so important for them to reconvene, they went back to the temple and oversaw the execution. But who knows? It's a good question. It's, it's not, it's not clear one way or the other. So that's the first episode on page 43a in Sanhedrin. The second episode is also from Sanhedrin, from 107b. And this is talking during the reign of Alexander Yanai, who was the second to last king of the Hasmoneans. Now, he was a Sadducee, 
and therefore that created a lot of tension between him and the local populace. For example, he was the grandson of Shimon and the great-grandson of Matisyahu, the founder of the Maccabean Revolt. But he, because he was a Sadducee, he didn't accept the authority of the Sanhedrin and oral Torah. Well, therefore, he would deliberately behave in a way that would agitate the masses because they, the masses were in favor of oral Torah. So, for example, in the year 95 before the Common Era, he, on Sukkot, on the holiday of Sukkot, during the uh, celebration of the Simchas Beis HaShoeva, they would pour the water libations. Instead of pouring it on the altar, he poured it on his feet to mock the masses. And the collected assembly of Jews, they all picked up their esros on the holiday of Sukkot and started pelting him and almost killed him. <laughs> and he commanded his mercenaries to start slaughtering, and they killed 6,000 people that day. But this really shows the tension that existed between the kind of upper class, the priestly class, and the Hasmonean kings of the time, which unfortunately have gone far away from their antecedents and the local population. So the Talmud here is talking about where Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, who was the, one of the leaders of the Jews at the time, was escaping from Alexander Yanai, who was executing and assassinating rabbis. Alexander Yanai undertook this effort to assassinate rabbis, and the rabbis fled, of course. And the Talmud starts with a pedagogical, pedagogical lesson that a person should always strike with their left hand, but bring close with their right hand. The idea is, when you have a child or a student, so you want to criticize them, maybe they're deserving of it, but you should do it with the left hand, i.e. with the weaker hand, but when you bring someone close, you do it with the right hand, with a more stronger hand. So, i.e., you should be more leaning towards love than towards castigation. And the Talmud says you should do that not like Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia and his student, Yeshu. What was the story? So, Alexander Yanai is kicking all the rabbis, is assassinating rabbis. And Rabbi Shubham Prachia, who is one of the heads of the Sanhedrin, he flees to Egypt. And he flees with his students. One of them is, the, uh, is someone by the name of Yeshu. And they're staying in Egypt. And on the way, and, and then they get, they get word that Alexander Yanai has stopped assassinating rabbis. You can head back home to Israel. So on the way back, they're traveling back from Alexandria in Egypt to Israel. And they're stopping off at a local motel or inn or whatever. And because he's the leader of the Jews and he's a really wonderful person, so they treat the rabbi and all his students with great honor. And Rabbi Shubham Prachia tells his students, look what a wonderful achsanya this is. And the word achsanya is a little bit of an ambiguous word because it could mean this wonderful inn, but it also could mean this wonderful in keeper. So Rabbi Shon Prakha had said, what a wonderful inn, look how well they're treating us, but his student Yeshu misinterpreted it as meaning what a wonderful inn keeper this is. So he responds, Yeshu does, but wait a minute, her eyes are kind of a little bit narrow. Such a, not such a beautiful innkeeper after all. Kind of a little cross-eyed. Not so beautiful. So so the rabbi said to Yeshu, he says, Russia, wicked one, this is what you're looking at? And he, he, he took out 400 trumpets, 
which is a way of saying, he excommunicated him. He made a big deal about it, and he sent him away. And every time Yeshu would come back to try to find favor and repent with his teacher, his teacher would push him away. Until finally, he came, and his teacher was saying Shema, and thus he was busy, but he had meant actually to accept his apology. But he kind of told him, wait one second until I'm finished. Yeshu was fed up. He found a rock, started bowing down to the rock, and went off to idolatry. Once his teacher has finished the Shema, he says, okay, now repent. He says, well, it's too late for me to repent. I've done too many sins. And then he went along his way to sorcery and to public and private heresy. So this is an interesting story, because here... This is not some unnamed Sanhedrin with these strange debates between Yeshu and the five students. Here, we know who we're talking about. We're talking about Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, who, during the era of the Zugot, during the five Zugot, where you would have the leaders of the people, one of them being the head of the Sanhedrin, and the other one being the Nasi, the, 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 the prince, they were the leaders of the Jewish people. One of them was Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia. And the last one of them, of course, is Hillel and Shammai. These are the leaders of the Jewish people. And the, the Talmud, the Jewish text, is calling him out, is, is, is giving a lesson to us how to treat children and students, and it's pointing a finger to Rabbi Shub and Prakha, saying he did a wrong job, not like him, he made a mistake. Furthermore, we get the name of Alexander Yanai, we also meet the name of Shimon ben Shetach, which I kind of skipped here, but the, these are names and dates and time-stamped points in history but furthermore, this seems like it's a real episode, because otherwise, what do we have? Suppose it's not a real episode. Suppose this, too, is some sort of theological lesson. Well, you wouldn't include the name of Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia and say, he made a huge mistake. You would say some generic rabbi or generic student, and you would teach the lesson. The Talmud is never going to castigate one of the great leaders of the Jewish people with an episode that's not true just for some sort of lesson. So what's clear to us, certainly from reading this story, is that this story is describing an actual event that happened. The problem is, Rabbi Shuba and Prachia, he lives 100 years before the Common Era, 130 years before J.C. is purported to have lived and or died. So is this the same guy or not? It's, it's a hard question to answer. It seems like we're describing a historical event of someone by the name of Yeshu, it also gives him the same litany of sins that the other Yeshu in the previous section did, sorcery, public, and private heresy. But is this the Christian JC? Because their guy appears in the beginning of the first century of the Common Era. Here we're describing someone at the beginning of the first century before the Common Era, so at least 100 years prior. So that's surprising. But maybe if this is the guy... Or this is a Jewish perspective on who this person maybe was. Now, there's another section in the Talmud. This is from the book of Shabbos. And one of the 39 prohibitions on Shabbos is to not write. And the question the Talmud is dealing with, are you allowed to write on a tattoo? Is a tattoo considered writing? Or is that, that's not writing, that's, that's some other thing, it's not considered writing. So you, you, you write means to write a message. You, you don't, you don't, you tattoo is something else entirely. So Talmud has a, Mishnah has a debate one way or another. And Rabbi Eliezer said to the sages, Rabbi Eliezer says that this is a normal way of writing. Some, sometimes people write notes just for themselves in the form of tattoo. You want to keep a little note for yourself? You know, you just pull out your tattoo gun and just 
jot it down. That's what Rabbi Eliezer suggests. And the rabbis say, no, that's not a way to write. You don't write with a tattoo. You write with a pen and paper. A tattoo is some other message you want to promulgate for whatever reason. Now, Rabbi Eliezer said to the sages like this, is it not true that Ben Stada brought witchcraft out of Egypt by markings on his flesh? So it's quoting someone by the name of Ben Stada, the son of Stada, who was in Egypt and wanted to smuggle out witchcraft out of Egypt. Probably didn't let him take it, so he tattooed it into his skin. And they said to him, no, he was a fool, and we don't bring proofs from fools. You want to say that writing is a normal thing to do with, with tattoos. You find someone who's crazy, who actually keeps notes with tattoos, that's not a good proof. In order for something to be prohibited on Shabbos as a form of writing, normal people have to follow that rule. But then the Talmud has this whole discussion of who was this Ben Stada. Was his name Ben Stada? Wasn't he the name of Ben Pandira? Is it Ben Stada or Ben Pandira? Who are you talking about? So Rav Chista says, no, his mother's husband was Stada, but his actual biological father was his mother's adulterer, and that was Pandira. But the Talmud says, wait a minute, was his, was her, his mother's husband, was her, name, was her name Stada? His name was Papas Ben Yehuda. So the Gemara finally concludes, and I'll give a recap of this. His mother was Stada. His father was Pandira. But wait a minute, his mother was Mary the hairdresser, Mary Magdala. So finally the Gemara says, who was this? Her name was Mary or Miriam, but she was called Stada because of what they used to say in Pompadisa. Pompadisa is a Jewish city. And they used to say, someone who cheats on their husband is Sdata, which is a, the Aramaic word of someone who cheats on their husband, someone who adult, commits adultery on their husband. So, what this means is, we're describing someone who smuggles sorcery out of Egypt with a tattoo. That's who we're talking about. His mother, concludes the Gemara, is Miriam Magdala, but she's also called Stada because she committed adultery. Her husband is Papus ben Yehuda. His real, his real father is Pandira. Now, is this our guy? Is this the Christian JC? It sounds like a similar, some similar names there, right? Now, the problem with that is, is that this Papus ben Yehuda, we meet him again as well in the Talmud. If you remember, when Rabbi Akiva is living in the second century of the Common Era, and he's living under the Hadrianic persecutions, Hadrian says whoever studies Torah gets executed, he keeps on teaching Torah, and someone with the same name, Papus ben Yehuda, he says to Rabbi Akiva, what are you doing? Why are you studying Torah publicly when you know you're going to get executed for it? And Rabbi Akiva responds, with a famous metaphor, you have a, a fish in the water, and the fox comes and says, well, why are you in the water? Why are you hiding from the nets? Come on the, come on the, on the land. There's no nets over here. You'll be safe. And Rabbi Akiva says, well, that's us. You know, we're a fish in water with Torah. Yes, there may be nets that are trying to catch us, but if we go out of the Torah, we're totally done. That's Papa Ben Yehuda. And in the end, Rabbi Akiva was jailed and ultimately executed for teaching Torah. Papa Ben Yehuda ended up being a cellmate with him and he too was jailed, but not for Torah, for some other reason. That's what the Gemara says. But Rabbi Akiva died in the year 135 or 136 or even 137 of the Common Era. So that's 230 years after Rabbi Shulban Prachia. 
and a hundred years after the alleged Christian hero is supposed to have lived. So if this Ben Stada, Ben Pandira, whoever this person who smuggled the tattoos out of Egypt is... Uh, is the, is it the same Yeshu? Could it be the same Yeshu? So all the commentators talk about it and say, wait, it can't be the same Yeshu because it's from a different time period. But there's another source. This is again from Sanhedrin 67a. And it's talking about the laws of execution, but it says, it's describing that someone who is a, commits public heresy has different judicial laws. Uh, normally, if someone wants to be executed, or someone's, any, any judicial happenings has to have two witnesses. The witnesses have to see what the person's doing, and they have to come testify. But the witnesses have to give warning to the person. So if two people, they give warning, and the person does it anyhow, you bring them to court. But in a case of public heresy, you don't need to have the two witnesses present. They could be hiding behind the tree, and if they overhear the public heresy being promulgated, then they could bring him to court even though they haven't gave, given him warning. And the Talmud says, this is what they did to Ben Stada in Lud. They hanged him on the eve of Passover. And once again, it goes through the whole rigmarole. Is it Ben Stada? No, it's Ben Pandira. No, it was, uh, Pandira was the husband of Stada. The whole back and forth. But it was Papa's Ben Yehuda. No, his mother was Stada. But she was called Miriam, the hairdresser. No, but she dis- yeah, she was disloyal and deserted her husband. What this seems to indicate, so clearly this is talking about someone at a different point in history. So this is where the evidence is that in Jewish sources, the there's at least two people by the name of Yeshu, because in a third source, yet another source, uh, we're told about a sorcerer by the name of Yeshu ben Stad or ben Pandira. So it seems like this guy is again connected to Yeshu, but... The timeline, neither timeline, not the one of Rabbi Shubham Prachia, nor the one of, uh, of the one of the son of Miriam aligns perfectly with the Christian timeline. But certainly, this is a, uh, this is an indication of a perspective that we have had uh, regarding JC. To me, it seems clear that there's at least two. I want to say maybe there's even a third. Who it actually is? Is it a composite of the three? What if you were to say, looking at all, at all the evidence, what, you know, what is the Jewish perspective on JC? I think the easiest answer is it's sort of complicated. Uh, we have various people. Is it one or the other? Is there maybe there's two Papas Ben Yehudas? I think that's also a good answer. Maybe the same name Papas Ben Yehuda appears. 130 years after the, after the uh, modern era, after the common era, and he also appeared earlier. Who knows? It's a great question. But I certainly would, I'm more likely to believe, you know, the biases of the rabbis uh, when someone who's a woman whose husband is out of town and she becomes pregnant. Sometimes the easiest answer is actually the truest one. And the Talmud is talking about a woman who was an adulterer uh, with Pandira, Pandira is a Roman name, uh, whereas her husband was out of town, I think there's an easy answer to that, right? I think it's, it's likely to me, to, um, I'm, more, it's, I'm more inclined to trust this narrative versus uh, any other uh, miraculous narrative of how a woman like that became, uh, became pregnant. 
But it's certainly not an easy answer to say. I think if, if you look at the evidence, it's not an easy answer to say what, who, you know, who do we believe or what we believe regarding this question. Now, before, before we finished here, there's another source. It's not in the Talmud. It's actually written in the Middle Ages, but it's quoted by Rishonim, by like Rashi quotes it, for example. And it has been, it too has been censored and burned many times. It's called Toldos Yeshu Hanatsur, which means the Chronicles of Yeshu, which essentially is a a really fascinating perspective on early Christianity. You actually find this online. So it was really hard to find once, but now it's available online. I have a copy of it, um, and it describes a problem that existed. We know that whenever this movement got started, precisely. But it was a variant of Judaism. It was just Jews with a twist of JC fascination. It wasn't even a different religion. And the rabbis and the leaders of the Jewish people were faced with a major problem. You have your neighbor. He looks like you and he dresses like you. He sends kids to the same school. And they go to the same shul and the same mikvah and the same everything. Observe Torah and everything. But they're closet Christians. They have this belief that their dead hero is Messiah. And that's a major problem. But how do you weed them out? So we know that if you look at the Amidah service, it's called, alternatively, the Shemona Esrei. Because there's 18 blessings within the Shemona Esrei. And the word Shemona Esrei means 18. But if you actually count the blessings, it's 19. And the reason is because in the middle of the uh, first century of the Common Era, they added a 19th blessing against the Jewish Christians. And if anyone was suspected as being a closet Christian... They say to him, hey, why don't you go lead the services? You have such a beautiful voice. And if the person would continually refuse, you know that they're hesitant to say the blessing against the heretics, and thus they would be out and they have to choose their allegiances. You want to be a Jew, you want to be a Christian, you can't be both. Uh, but this narrative in the Told of Yeshua Natsri describes a convention that happened amongst all the rabbis. And they were talking about the problem. What do we do? We have these Christians. How, how do we navigate through this? And someone by the name of Shimon, he said, we have no choice. We have to infiltrate the Jewish Christian movement, rise to the top, and abrogate the law. And they said, that's a great idea. You're nominated. <laughs> so he agreed on certain conditions. He agreed to do it provided that they guarantee him a portion of the world to come, despite everything that he's going to do. And he becomes the Bishop of Jerusalem, eventually moves to Rome, becomes the first Pope, and he's known to us as St. Peter, or Simon Peter. The word Peter in Hebrew means poter, someone who makes someone absolved. And he spearheads the bifurcation of Judaism and Christianity. For example, Paul comes up, and he has a whole different spin in Christianity, where you don't need, no longer need to observe the laws and it's open to non-Jews. Well, who signed off on that? Shimon Poter, Shimon, Shimon uh, Simon Peter, the same Tana, the same uh, one of the rabbis who was clandestinely a uh, a secret uh, uh, you know, fifth column for the Jews, and he was indeed in clandestine communication with rabbis in Israel. There's a prayer that we say every Shabbos called the Nishmas Kol Chai. Who authored that? No one knows. But according to Jewish tradition, this guy, Shimon Peter, he authored it from Rome. He would secretly write these uh, prayers and ship them to Rome, to, to Jerusalem, and they would say, because he's such a great hero of uh, you know, his commitment and sacrifice for the Jewish people, 
we're going to incorporate it into uh, into our prayer. Now, on, at this time, uh, Christianity is a, it, w- it was a subsect of Judaism, and yet there is this from the beginning they instituted that all Christian prayers and all Christian books are written in Latin. And that's a product of Shimon Peter, of Shimon Poter. He, he wanted to make sure that if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. You can't be both at the same time. And thus he made sure that their writings went in a certain direction. In fact, there are those that suggest that he actually gave the names to the Latin alphabet. So the middle ones, what are the, what are the middle ones? L, M, N. God doesn't have a mother. So he kind of like threw these little, sh- this shtick, you know, while acting as, as a secret emissary of the rabbis in Rome to, to put these little quirks into the very fabric of, of Christian doctrine and way of life and even in the alphabet to, to kind of just show that he's still being loyal to the Jews. Indeed, there's a lot of sources about JC in early Christianity. Not a lot. There's a few sources. It's not so clear. They seem to be uh, somewhat in conflict. I, I, if I had to make a guess, I would say that there's at least two Jays, uh, two Yeshus in uh, in the in the sources. Which one of them is which? Which one of them is, is a Christian JC, or maybe neither of them is? It's a good question. I think it's possible that there's a third one. There's one 100 years prior, one 100 years post, and there's one at the time. And thus, maybe to answer some of our questions, the reason why they convened on the holiday of, on the eve of the holiday of, of Passover is because they were outside of Jerusalem in Chanot. They came back, reconvened, made a special uh, emergency session, and they did that at a time where everyone actually convened in Jerusalem in order to cover it up from the authorities. So that's why they would make an exception at this time. But it's still not clear. There's no evidence that's uh, uh, incontrovertible one way or the other. There's a lot of interesting lessons that we could take, certainly about the perspective that they have had uh, regarding this individual. Clearly, to them, and I think it's more logical to us, if someone has a mother and we can't find the father, there's an easier solution than some sort of immaculate conception, would you say? Uh, but regardless, it's not as clear as what you may see. And uh, a good idea with regards to any Jewish sources, uh, whenever you hear about them, to actually look at what the sources say and to be better informed in making an evaluation of the evidence.